all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's going down, my stellar squad? Welcome to the galactic voyage known as Star Wars Audio Archives. I'm your cosmic companion, Kyle. So fasten your seatbelt because we're about to launch into the thrilling third part of Light of the Jedi. Picture this, we're deep in the heart of the galaxy, surrounded by a tapestry of twinkling stars. The High Republic is calling, and its mysteries are more enthralling than ever. Our heroes are gearing up for an adventure that is as daring as a leap into hyperspace. In today's episode, get ready for twists and turns that'll make the Kessel Run look like a leisure stroll. We're talking mind-bending revelations, heart-stopping bravery, and maybe even a glimpse of the dark side that will chill you to your bones. Will our valiant Jedi Knights prevail, or will the shadows of the evil loom at large? Strap in as we're not just observers, we're a part of this cosmic saga. Feel the force flow through you as we embark on this epic journey. Prepare for light speed, friends, because this adventure is about to start now. Hetzal Prime. 60 minutes to impact. Bell was falling. He had hoped he might be gliding, but no, definitely falling. He had followed his master over the side of the Nova, leaping out of the Vector's cockpit to drop to the ground below. He had practiced maneuvers like this many times in the temple, but there was generally some sort of padding involved in that situation. A safety measure if the Jedi in training couldn't quite muster the necessary concentration to use the Force to break his fall. Now, gravity was gravity, and even the Force couldn't turn it off. Though Bell thought perhaps Master Yoda could make it happen, if he focused hard enough. But you could convince the Force to slow you down, reduce the impact when you landed. Perfectly executed, you would alight on the ground like a leaf or a snowflake. What Bell was doing was not perfectly executed. The Force seemed to be busy elsewhere, unwilling to listen to his request for assistance. As the ground approached with alarming speed, Bell's focus left him entirely. He threw his arms up, opened his mouth to scream. As a Jedi, he knew he should be meeting his death with dignity, but this was about as undignified as you could get. Bell Zetafar was about to end his Padawan career by smashing into the ground like a rotten piece of fruit and probably splattering all over everything, and he didn't. Bell slowed, and he rotated in the air until his feet were pointed at the ground, and he lit upon it like a leaf or a snowflake. You'll need more training his master said from not far away, with a smile in his voice. Bell opened his eyes, and there was Jedi Master Loden Greatstorm, one hand raised, a smile on his face, too. Probably, Bell said. Definitely, Loden said, lowering his arm. We'll work on it. He looked up at the Nova, moving a hundred or so meters above them in gentle, autopiloted circles, biding its time until the Jedi required it again. That wasn't much of a fall, really, Loden said. You barely had time to think before the ground came calling. I get it, Bell. This is my fault. But don't worry. I can fix it. When we're back on Coruscant, 
I'll throw you off the tallest super towers we can find. Maybe you'll just need more time to commune with the Force. Some of those towers are thousands of stories tall. You could be falling for minutes. Plenty of time. Sounds like a wonderful idea, Master, Bell said. I agree, Loden said. Bell turned to look at the reason Loden hadn't just brought their ship in for a landing in the first place. Hundreds of angry Hetzal Prime natives crowded around the compound the two Jedi had seen from their vector. The home of this wealthy merchant or entertainer or business person. Above the high spiked walls, the sleek curve of the starship waiting inside the compound was clearly visible. Every person in that crowd had heard Minister Eka's evacuation order and knew that a path off-planet waited inside the gates. Guards atop the walls seemed ill-inclined to allow anyone to get inside. Each held a powerful-looking rifle, and if their weapons weren't aimed directly at the milling crowd, they certainly weren't aimed away. If things got ugly, people would die. Many people. Bell and Loden had drawn the attention of the evacuees, unsurprising. Two Jedi falling from the sky got noticed, even in the desperate circumstances these people found themselves dealing with. Loden walked to the nearest group, two men and a woman, one of the men holding a swaddled infant. They were afraid, unhappy, at the edge of hope, and Bell didn't need the Force to sense it. Hello, Loden said. My name is Lodan Greatstorm. I'm a member of the Jedi Order. My apprentice here is Bel Zetifar. We're here to help. What's happening? Why aren't you being allowed to board that ship? One of the men looked up at the guards on the compound wall, then back at Lodan. Because the ship belongs to the family that lives in the fancy house on the other side of that gate with all the spikes on it. They're called the Rana Rockies. They pay those guards to make sure no one's going to fly out of here, but then they're getting ready to leave. Packing their fancy socks or some garbage like that. Taking their time while the rest of us wait out here. The woman spoke up, her voice cracking. There aren't any ships left. They've all gone. And they aren't coming back. This is the only way off world. And Minister Ecker's order made it sound like... Made it sound like... Loden reached out a hand, touching the side of the woman's face, and she calmed, an ease returning to her manner. You will not worry, he said, in a low, resonant tone Bell recognized. Loden was using the force to add weight to his words, to cut through the surrounding chaos and anxiety. Focus on your family, your child. Keep them safe. I will take care of the rest. The woman nodded, and even smiled. Come, Padawan, Loden said, and he began walking toward the gates, his stride determined. He didn't look back to see if Bell was following, but he didn't really need to. Where Loden went, Bell followed. If nothing else, just to see what his master was going to do. The two Jedi walked through the crowd, which parted for them easily as soon as the people realized who they were. They were still dressed in the ceremonial garments they wore for the Starlight Beacon inspection. 
soft fabrics of white and gold, with colored accents here and there, held together by a golden clasp shaped into the insignia of the Jedi Order. For operations in the field, they would ordinarily wear their leathers, sometimes even armor, depending on the task at hand. But there had been no time to change. The Third Horizon had dropped into the system, and off they went. Bill thought that was good, perhaps. No one would mistake them for anything other than what they were. Sometimes, just being a Jedi could solve problems. He knew he and Loden were an imposing pair, too. A human and a Twi'lek, both tall and dark-skinned, with lightsabers at their hips. Their footsteps echoed with the full authority of the Jedi Council. Murmurs spread out from their passage, like ripples on water. And the angry shouts and cries died down, until they walked through a silent crowd, all eyes on them. It seemed that Bell was not the only one who wanted to know what his master was planning. Loden stepped up to the gates. He looked up where two of the guards were stationed in battlements atop the wall on either side. This no longer looked like a home. It was more like a small fortress. Bell wondered what this family did, these Ranarakis, that would require them to hire such an extensive security staff. At least two dozen men and women stood guard up on the walls, and presumably more waited inside. Hello there, Master Jedi! one of the guards said, his tone companionable enough. Can't let you in either. Sorry. Besides, looks like you have your own ship. Why don't you two hop back in it and fly on back to the core worlds? This is private property. I'm still outside the gates, Loden said. Surely whatever authority you have doesn't extend beyond the walls. The guard lifted his weapon and let it rest on his shoulder. He spat a bit of phlegm landing on the ground, outside the walls, with a wet splat. So you say, he said. I was told you won't let any of these people access that ship, despite the evacuation order issued by the planet's leader. That's right. But the vessel could hold most of them. Maybe all of them, if you got creative. It's not my job to let them board, Jedi. It's my job to make sure they don't. Perhaps you should consider an early retirement, Loden said. As always, there was a smile in his voice. But Bell recognized the meaning of this particular flavor of smile. Just as he'd known when his master was using the Jedi mind touch to calm the refugee woman. Bell moved part of his tunic to one side, exposing his holstered lightsaber hilt. Without looking at him, Loden raised a hand toward Bell and tapped two fingers together, the first and second on his left hand, a prearranged signal. It meant one very simple thing. No, don't. Bell forced himself to relax. The guard captain seemed utterly unconcerned even a little amused. What do you think you're gonna do, Jedi? Get right through the walls with your lightsaber? Fight off every one of us? His master leaned forward, a smile now on his lips, as well as in his voice. Sure, he said. Why not? 
The guard's face changed. No longer amused. Now, confused. Concerned. Open the gates, Loden Greatstorm said. I promise you, it's the best way forward. For all these people out here, but also for you. And all your friends up there, too. The guard looked at Loden, and Loden looked at the guard. Bell knew how this was going to go, and he couldn't help but relish it, even though he knew relishing moments like this was very un-Jedi-like. Loden hadn't even had to draw his weapon, hadn't used the mind touch. Loden Greatstorm had just spoken a few well-chosen words, and now... Open the gates, the guard captain said, his tone weary, defeated. Thank you, Loden said. He turned away, looking at Bell. We'll stay for a bit, he said. Make sure this all goes smoothly. Then we'll head out and see if there's another place we might make ourselves useful, yeah? Yeah, Bell said. Sounds from behind them, and both Jedi spun. They were not good sounds. Blasters fired, and screams. They could not see what was happening. Not through the crowd. Up, Loden said, and he leapt to the top of the wall, landing next to the very surprised captain of the Ronaraki family's personal guard. Bell followed, and from the higher vantage point, they could see speeders, two of them, bulky, heavy things, each with deck-mounted blaster cannons, firing directly into the crowd. Marauders, Bell thought, come to take the ship inside the compound. As desperate as anyone else left on Hetzal Prime, but significantly better armed. They were attacking the defenseless crowd, clearing them out of the way so they could smash their way into the compound and steal the starship. Sabers, Loden Greatstorm said, giving the command. The smile in his voice was gone. Hetzal system, above the fruited moon. Fifty minutes to impact. We can't do this! It's impossible! Said Joss Adrian, current commanding officer of the Republic Longbeam, designation Aurora 3. Just shooting the blasted thing would have been hard enough! He stared at his cockpit display, depicting his own ship. The three Jedi Vectors flying escort, the massive hyperspace anomaly whipping through space that somehow contained living beings, and, of course, the densely inhabited moon that said anomaly was going to impact and probably eradicate in, oh, call it 12 minutes. In other words, the problem they were somehow expected to solve. When they'd volunteered to take out a long beam and help where they could, Joss's primary motivation had just been that he wanted to try out one of the fancy new Republic ships. He'd never flown this model before, and it had supposedly had some nice little tweaks on the last design. Not that he wasn't happy to help out, sure, but now he had people's lives in his hands. Like, a lot of lives. And while people might celebrate him if he succeeded, they would sure as hell blame him if he failed. Just cursed. And he cursed again. Then four more times. Is that really helpful? Said his co-pilot, Pika Adrian, 
second in command of the Aurora Three, and first in command of his heart. Don't tell me you can't relate, he said. She looked a little bemused, a little irritated, and very focused. Also very beautiful, with light eyes and dark curly hair, and a pile of dark freckles across slightly lighter skin he loved to see and touch. His wife liked to tell him he was handsome, but he knew the truth. He looked like an engine block with a head stuck on top. With hair he kept cropped tight to his skull, so he never had to think about it. Joss Adrian assumed he must have had some good qualities, otherwise he'd never have landed someone like Pika. But he knew his looks were not on the list. I can relate to your frustration, dear, his wife said. I still want to try saving these people. Well, of course I want to try, Pika, Joss said. I just don't see how. The mission had begun as a seek and destroy. The target was one of the mysterious projectiles that had appeared in the Hetzal system. It was moving fast, but it was unarmed and didn't appear to be able to alter its trajectory. They just had to blow it up before it hit the moon. Difficult, but not impossible. But now, thanks to Teami and their other three Jedi colleagues on this mission, they knew that the object was somehow inhabited. There were people aboard it. Living people. So while the seek part of the mission was done and dusted, the destroy part was off the table. At least until they managed to rescue the people inside. Once that was done, however they might do it, and that was still very unclear, they would still have to blow the thing up. Because it was on a collision course with the fruit moon, or whatever the people in this system called it. One tricky mission had become an impossible one, with the original tricky mission still nested inside it. Joss sighed, then began running through his operational assets. A long beam, with all its capabilities and weapons and tools. A pretty magnificent ship, honestly. You could do a lot with a long beam. Beyond that, they had three vectors containing four space wizards and... He'd always been a little fuzzy on what they were actually capable of. Jedi could do amazing things, sure, but which amazing things? He considered that, extremely conscious that every moment he spent trying and failing to find a solution meant this fragment, this ship, whatever it was, got closer to smashing into the moon, obliterating everyone aboard as well as the planetoid itself. So, what could Jedi do? They could use those laser swords of theirs pretty well. Always fun to see in action, but he didn't figure they would do much good just then. Jedi could jump high and run fast, <laughs> but not as high as space and not as fast as a ship moving at a pretty good percentage of light speed. They could stand around and look cool. He'd seen them do that plenty of times. They could... move things around with their minds? Huh, Joss thought. He turned to Pika. Mad clamps? He said, knowing he didn't need to explain further. She'd get it right away. One of the reasons they worked well together on and off duty. Maybe, Pika said, thinking. What kind of cabling are they rigged with? Igarian silk, Joss answered. 
They just did a refit on all these long beams. Swapped it in instead of the Dura alloy line. That's good. The Guardian's got a higher tensile strength, and it's got the variable elasticity. The more electricity you run through it, the more rigid it gets. If we could latch onto the object and start pretty stretchy and ratchet up the tension slowly... Exactly! Do it gradual, so the cables don't snap! Pika nodded, tapping her finger on the control panel, thinking hard. But we'll never hit it. Those clamps aren't like blasters. They're big, clunky, bad for precision work. They're designed to tow stationary wrecks back to dock for repairs. The anomaly's moving too fast. Yeah, well, Joss said. I had an idea about that, too. He activated his comm system. Master Teami, he said. He wasn't sure if the Duros Jedi actually was a Jedi Master, or a Jedi Knight, or some other rank in the Order, but he called them all Master. Better safe than sorry. Joss didn't know if the Jedi could even get offended, but... Why take a chance? Yes, Captain Adrian. Came the Jedi's voice, cool and utterly without tension, even though she was facing the same impossible problems he was. I might have an idea, but I have a question. You know how you guys can move things around by thinking about it? A bit of a pause. We can use our connection to the Force, but yes, I know what you mean. Can you stop things from moving around? Another longer pause. I see where you're going with this, Captain. But we're not gods. We can't just stop that thing cold. Not asking you to, Joss said, rolling his eyes at Pika, who grinned at him. We have something aboard that might be able to slow it down, but it's not easy to use. We'll have to try to match velocity with the fragment, and we all know how fast it's going. It'll take every bit of engine power we have, and a lot of our fuel, just to accelerate to where we need to be. If you can slow it down, even a little, even 5%, even 1%, it would make a big difference. At these speeds, even a minor downward shift in velocity would still mean a significant reduction in the resources we'd have to expend. One moment. Tayami said. The line went cold, and Joss figured she was probably talking to the other Jedi, seeing if they thought this would work. The calm hissed back to life. We'll do what we can. Excellent, Joss said. Then I thought, and he leaned forward and spoke into the calm again. And, uh, if you could maybe try to hold the fragment together, too, when you slow it down? Why? Because we're going to hit it with these big metal clamp things, and we don't know how fragile it is. We don't even know what it is. Might cause it to shatter. So if there's anything you could do to, you know, prevent that, might be good. A very long pause. This is the best idea you have. Only idea I have, Master Jedi. If we can connect to the thing, we can reverse engines, full power, but gradual, slow it down. We're not seeing any drive signatures from it. It's like a projectile from a slug thrower, like someone whipped a rock real fast. If we could get some opposing force on it, should drain down the velocity pretty quick. If, uh, it doesn't break apart. 
But that's where you guys come in. The longest pause yet. As I said, Captain, we'll do what we can. Great, Joss said. He snapped off the comm and turned to Pika. The space wizards don't seem very excited about this, she said. Eh, he answered. They'll be excited when it works. Is it going to work? She asked. Or will the thing break apart? Or will the cable snap and whiplash us off into space? Or will we just not be able to latch on no matter what we try? Eh, Joss said again. He pushed the throttle all the way forward, and the long beam leapt into space, the engines roaring, every surface vibrating with power. Let's find out! Hetzal System. Interplanetary space. Forty minutes to impact. A line of four vessels, carrying approximately 3,500 people, moved at a steady pace away from Hetzal Prime. They sought safety from the barrage of deadly projectiles that had infiltrated the system and continued to wreak havoc. From the farthest reaches all the way to the gas harvesting stations near the three suns that powered Hetzal's endless growing seasons, destruction reigned. Two of the ships were passenger liners, and two were cargo freighters, temporarily repurposed as transports for the duration of the emergency. While the passenger liners were capable of greater speed than the freighters, all four captains had opted to remain together as they traversed space on their way out of the system, so as to render aid to one another if needed. Minister Eka's evacuation order had asked all ships to reach minimum safe distance, but was vague on what that might actually mean. To find their path to safety, the captains were relying on the Republic vessel that had transited into the system at the start of all this. It was coordinating efforts from the surface of Hetzal Prime, sending out a tracking feed. From that, the captains could see the path of the deadly rain of projectiles falling on the system. It gave them a sense of where safety might lie. Based on what they could see, they should be out of the danger zone soon. After that... Who knew? Apparently the Republic and their Jedi colleagues were executing some sort of plan, but no one on the ships knew what it was, or when it would be possible to return to their homeworld. Assuming they ever could. For all they knew, the situation was permanent, and they would never set foot on Hetzal Prime again. This turned out to be true. In less than the blink of an eye, the ships vanished, replaced with four slowly expanding balloons of fire and vapor and shredded metal and molecular remnants of the thousands of people aboard. One of the projectiles had exited hyperspace directly in their path, and because the vessels had grouped together for safety, it pierced them all, one after the other, like a skewer through bits of meat. The ships were gone. On the third horizon, Jedi Master Avar Chris heard the new silence of all those souls lost to the Force forever. Her mouth tightened. She continued to listen. Something was off. A bad note in the melody. She tried to understand what she was hearing, 
sensing, knowing that she was stretching her abilities to their limits. There was too much happening in the Hetzal system all at once, and her mind was not truly capable of processing it. She was pushing, trying to make the Force reveal the answer to her. That was not the way. She needed to pull back, not shove forward. Let the Force give her what it willed in its own time. Avar slowed her breathing, slowed her heart, felt calm return to her mind and spirit. She listened again for the bad note. As she did, a projectile finally hit the surface of Hetzal Prime. A sea impact, destroying thousands of square kilometers of algae farms, sending water vapor high into the atmosphere and tsunamis outward in a rapidly expanding circle. People died, but hundreds, not thousands or millions, as the farms were mostly automated and droid managed. Perhaps more would be lost when the waves hit the coasts, but it all could be worse, much worse. The hyperspace fragment was small and greatly slowed by the water. It did not penetrate the planet's crust. A bad note, certainly, but no worse than the other bits of ugliness and pain she was hearing. The system remained out of balance, despite the ongoing efforts of the Jedi and Republic to save it. No, what she was seeking was not a bad note. It was a missing note. There was a hole right in the middle of her awareness. Something she was not hearing. Something the Force was trying to point out to her. But with everything else she was tracking, the anomalies, the fear of the people trapped aboard, some of them, her own teams trying to help, and just the web of life within the system, it was all too complex, too distracting. She was missing something. And if she could not find a way to hear it, she believed everything they were doing here might in the end, mean nothing. Avar Chris opened her spirit as much as she could. She listened. Solar Array 22X, Republic Longbeam Aurora 9. 35 minutes to impact. Now, Petty Officer, ordered Captain Bright. And Inamin activated the fire suppressor systems. A line of green foam arced out from nozzles mounted below the long beam's cockpit, impacting the flames rippling across the damaged Sun Farm's docking ring. The moment the fire was out, Bright maneuvered the ship forward, trying to get a good seal with the docking mechanism. It wasn't easy. The array had been badly damaged when the hyperspace projectile smashed through its outer arms and the whole station was in a loose, fast spin. The giant mess of solar panels, bracing struts, and the large central crew compartment were all equipped with external thrusters, which were trying to compensate for the spin. But whatever droid brain was in charge of the anti-spin system didn't seem to understand that the mass of the array had changed drastically when it lost so many arms in the collision. All the little attitude adjustments vapor buzzing out into space from the maneuvering jets. They just made things worse. The central sphere, where the operations crew lived and worked, 
was vibrating, buzzing like a hive full of irritated insects. Connecting the Aurora 9 to the station's docking system without destroying ship, station, or both required the most skillful possible flying. Fortunately, Captain Bright was a very skillful flyer. Let's get in there, he said, watching his control panel light up green as the diagnostics told him the docking seal was good. He looked up and saw his team. Petty Officer Inaman and Ensign Peoples, both of whom had suited up in emergency rescue gear, pulled from the long beam's lockers. This station has a crew complement of seven, Wright said. It's not that big, but there are still plenty of places to hide. They aren't responding to our comms, which means either they're injured or the array's systems were damaged when the projectile hit. We'll have to do a sweep. We'll split up, each of us taking a third of the decks. If you find someone, bring them back to the airlock. If you need help, call for the droid. He nodded toward the floating silver cylinder hovering just outside the cockpit, vertically oriented and rounded on top and bottom. A pill droid. Very simple design, with one large, round crystal eye and a speaker grill below. It didn't seem particularly functional, but that was deceptive. Bright had seen these things work. The droid had a variety of extender arms hidden behind sleek panels on its body, and could use them for everything from moving wreckage off trapped victims to performing basic on-site surgery. Handy machine to have around. Let's go, Bright said, and pressed the release that opened the Aurora 9's airlock. A wash of furnished white air flooded out from the damaged station, bringing with it odors of chemically tinged smoke, melted plastoid, and overheated metal. It's burning, Ensign Peoples said, his proboscis vibrating almost as intensely as the station itself. It stinks. Maybe the solar array had too much far, far for lunch. Yeah, well, I'm getting it too. My tentacles are almost as sensitive as your nose, peoples. Just put on your mask and take shallow breaths. We have a job to do. The three operatives spread out through the station. The smoke thickened, and despite the tech-enhanced goggles they all wore, it rapidly became obvious that a visual search would be ineffective. The searchers called out as they moved along the decks, paused to listen for responses, and kept going. Bright was becoming increasingly sure that everyone in the station was dead when he heard a weak voice call out from behind a collapsed control console. Please, I'm here. Please. He moved toward the sound and saw a dark-skinned human sitting with her back against a bulkhead. Blood ran down the side of her face from a wound on her scalp. Another crew member lay beside her, unconscious. She had taken his head in her lap, but didn't seem to be able to offer anything else by way of assistance to the man. I'm from the Republic, Bright said to the woman. My name is Captain Bright. Don't worry, ma'am. We'll get you both out of here. What's your name? Shiri, she said, her voice weak. This is Van. I'm not sure if he's... He might be dead. He hasn't moved in a while. Don't worry about that now, Shiri. 
Are the other members of your crew still alive? I don't know. She said. We lost contact with one another when everything caught fire. The station's comms are down. As I expected. Right thought. He pulled a comm link from his belt and lifted it to his mouth. Inamin! Peoples! I have two survivors. One is too injured to move. I'm going to call the pill droid and get them back to the long beam. Have either of you had any luck? As he spoke, he tapped a remote clicked to his belt that would summon the rescue droid to his location. Hopefully, the machine would be able to do something for the unconscious men. Then, and if not, the medical bay on the Aurora 9 was equipped to handle a number of different emergencies. Wright's comlink crackled to life. No other survivors yet, Captain, Inaman said, his voice clouded by static. Evidently, the damage to the station was causing interference. But we have another problem. Talk to me, Wright said, watching the rescue droid glide silently into the room. He signaled to Shiri that he was going to keep moving, continue his search. She nodded, her expression pained, but grateful. I started on the lowest level. It's where they stuck the operational stuff for the station. Power, life support, all that. I had a hunch and wanted to check the main reactor. I'm glad I did. It took some serious damage. It's unstable. If it's not repaired, it'll blow for sure. Bastards! Bright thought. Not that he'd expected this to be easy, but this was an entirely different level of challenge. How long do we have? He said. Honestly, sure, if it were up to me, I'd pull us out right now. It could go in any second. Can you do anything? Stabilize it, even just long enough for us to continue our search. I found two survivors. There are bound to be more. Inaman was an engineer by training. Of the three crew members of the Aurora 9, he was the only one with the skill set to even consider fixing a damaged reactor. That also meant he was the only one who would be able to accurately assess whether he could do anything about it. Inaman could easily just say, Sorry, nope, can't do anything, we need to leave now, we did our best. And who would know the difference? The kid was young, had a lot to live for. But almost wouldn't have blamed him if he'd said it was time to go. I can try, Inaman said. Might be able to buy us a few minutes. Wright felt a surge of pride wash over him. We are all the Republic. We're all the Republic. We're all dead if we don't finish searching the station. Ensign Peoples chimed in from another deck. I have another survivor. Badly injured. Send me the pill. A tremor struck the station at just that moment. A quick, tight snap as if someone outside had whacked it with a durasteel rod a hundred meters long. It knocked Bright off his feet, and he barely caught himself before what could have been a nasty fall. He was sure this was it. They would all be blasted to vapor. Three would-be heroes gone in an instant, along with the people they were trying to save. But the shaking eased, and he still had a deck beneath his feet and walls to either side. The station was still intact. Wright decided to consider the incident a valuable reminder that they had to get the hell out of there. Buy us time, petty officer, he said, pulling himself to his feet. 
Bandits and peoples. I'll send the droid to you as soon as it's done handling my two survivors. I'll keep looking. Mike began to run, sweeping his eyes from side to side, scanning the haze for person-shaped outlines. But by the light, both of you, hurry! Hexall Prime, 30 minutes to impact. The two Jedi, Bell Zetafar and Loading Greatstorm, apprentice and master, sprinted toward the Marauder's speeders. The blades of their lightsabers buzzed and snapped through the air as they ran. The weapons sounded like nothing else in the galaxy. To Bell, it was the sound of skill and training and focus and the choice of last resort and the art of the Jedi. Lightsabers were designed to end conflicts. They were designed to injure no more than necessary. And in the horrible circumstance where death was the only possible outcome, they would kill quickly. No more damage would be done by a lightsaber than its wielder chose. There was no collateral damage with the lightsaber. The hum of his blade made Bell think of all these things at once. He suspected the marauders they were rapidly nearing assigned an entirely different meaning to the sound. He thought it probably sounded like consequences. The marauders saw them coming. <laughs> How could they not? Bell thought that was part of the point of a lightsaber too. It was bright. It glowed. It was impossible to ignore. Between the sound and the light, an enemy was given warning every possible chance to simply not fight. And wasn't that always the best outcome? These evil people did not seem to think so. Evil, that was the right word. Anyone who would fire into a crowd of helpless people in an effort to blast their way into a compound and steal a starship, that was evil in its purest definition. About 20 of the marauders waited, spread evenly between their two speeders. Both vehicles had large cannons mounted on the rear deck, and they swung to point at the Jedi. A loud hum splitting the air as the huge weapons powered up. Why has the Force called us to fight today? Loden said. For life and the light, Bell replied. The speeder's cannons fired, sending out a dense stream of blaster bolts, an overwhelming, ratcheting, spearing chaos. The sound of death. Bell was not expert yet at many of the Jedi arts. Logan was right to push him, to take every opportunity to train him, to solidify his skills. He was a Padawan, and probably would be for some time to come. But the lightsaber, that had come naturally to him from the very start. Loden and Bell deflected the blaster bolts, every last one. The shots were deadly, thick cores of high-powered energy racing at incredible speed. And all of that meant nothing to Jedi lightsabers, nothing to the force. The majority of the bolts were deflected skyward, away from the crowd. Both Jedi sent a few carefully aimed bolts back toward the speeders. They didn't need to coordinate. Bell took the speeder on the left, Loden on the right. 
each Jedi's choice obvious to the other through the Force. The bolts twanged off their blades with a sizzle of power. The deck cannons exploded, becoming twisted, smoking, metaled wreckage. The marauders operating those guns died. Bell sensed it happen. Even shrouded as he was in the focus he brought to protecting himself and those around him. And through the connection he felt to the other Jedi in the system through Master Chris's efforts on the Third Horizon. The cannons were gone, but they were not the only weapons the Marauders possessed. Small arms fire shot out from the smoking speeders. Rifles and scattered guns and blaster pistols. It didn't matter. Loden and Bell moved forward, inexorable, their blades flashing. A splinter grenade shot out from a tube held by one of the marauders, directly at a knot of fleeing refugees. Loden Greatstorm reached out without breaking stride, and the grenade took a right-angle turn, moving from the horizontal to the vertical, shooting straight up into the air, finally exploding harmlessly hundreds of meters above them. Shards of sharp metal that would have turned dozens into bloody meat fell instead on the cropland bordering the Ranaraki compound. Bell sensed his master's great displeasure at the attacker's choice, and almost, almost felt bad for them. The two Jedi leapt into the air, somersaulting, swatting away more blaster bolts as they arced up. Say this for the marauders, these dark and selfish people. They were decent shots. Not that it would matter. Bell landed on the speeder on the left, Loden on the speeder on the right, as if they discussed it. The marauders finally got smart, diving off their vehicles, scattering into the crowd. But not before the Jedi disarmed a few, with either well-placed lightsaber thrusts, or by using the Force to yank their weapons away. Blast it! Loden said, as the remaining villains, about eight, vanished into the crowd. Some of them are still armed. They might take hostages. We need to get after them, now. I know, Master, but how do we... <gasps> A snap, and suddenly Bell saw nothing but golden light. Light, blinding, filling his vision. His nostrils filled with the scent of overheated, ionized air. Heat and light and color. A lightsaber blade. A blaster bolt caromed harmlessly into the sky. A streak of light that until just a moment before was destined to drill a hole into Bell's forehead. Bell understood. His master had just saved his life. He looked past Loden's blade to see that the Ranaraki guards, still at their posts atop their still-sealed gates, had lifted their weapons and were firing directly at them. Fools, Loden said. What are they doing? Bell said, lifting his own blade and deflecting a blaster bolt. I thought you had an understanding with them. They must have misunderstood the understanding, Loden growled. They're taking their chance. They think between them and the Marauders, they can take us down. This is insane, Bell said. With everything else going on, they want to fight? They're afraid. They're trying to carve out a little control from an uncontrollable situation. From the crowd, more blaster fire as the remaining marauders saw their chance and fought their way toward the gates. It was turning into chaos, 
a full-on battle as families of refugees fought back. Clearly some had their own weapons, carried in case of emergency. And still, every moment, the larger disaster loomed. The longer these people remained on the planet, the greater the chance they all died when a projectile impacted the surface. In fact, it seemed like something already had. Far to the west, a huge, dark cloud was swelling up into the sky on a gigantic column, spreading out into a thick disk as it reached the upper atmosphere. Moans of terror rippled through the crowd of refugees. Massive clouds of darkness on the horizon were rarely a good sign. This has to stop, Loden said. I agree, Bell said. But how? His master looked out at the fighting. Then he glanced at the sky, where the Nova still circled slowly, high overhead. Or maybe he was looking for fiery trails spearing in from space, signifying doom falling on the planet. Nothing a lightsaber could knock back, no matter how good its wielder might be. It turned out he was evaluating, deciding, making a plan. Apprentice, Loden said, protect me. Without waiting to see how his Padawan would interpret this order, Loden deactivated his lightsaber. Just in time, Bell deflected a bolt that would have blasted a hole right through his teacher's chest. Favor repaid, Master, he thought. Loden closed his eyes, holding his hand up in front of him, palm out. He snapped his fingers out, spreading them like a star. That was all Bell could see. He stepped in front of his master, his lightsaber in a guard position, snapping blaster bolts back toward the guards on the wall. Nothing will get through, he thought. I will protect my master. He fell the force behind him, and eight figures shot up from the crowd, rising into the air. The remaining marauders... Most dropped their weapons, but some sent a few shots wildly into the air, hitting nothing, yelling in fury, their limbs flailing, before their blasters were yanked from their hands. Bell was in awe. This was the power of the Jedi. This, someday, could be him. Would be him. Even the Ronoraki guards stopped firing as all eyes watched the attackers rise into the air. Higher, higher. Three meters, five, ten. And then they dropped. They fell like rocks thrown off a cliff, screaming for perhaps a second and a half. Then they hit. The screams changed to moans of pain. They weren't dead. Bell would have sensed it. But these people would kill no one else. Not today, or perhaps ever. Cheers erupted from the crowd, which both Jedi ignored. They did their work because it was right, and for no other reason. Thank you, Bell, Loden said. You're welcome, Master. Loden lifted his lightsaber hilt. He pointed it at the gate to the compound, still locked, still sealed. He locked eyes with the guard captain, 
galaxy ignited the saber, and as the core of fire and light flashed into existence, the gates blew inward with a mighty crack, the lock obliterated by the force and Loden's mastery. The heavy metal doors smashed against the inner walls of the compound so hard it seemed as if they might rip from their hinges. Now, do you understand? He shouted at the guards as refugees streamed into the compound, headed for the starship. The guard captain watched the refugees for a long moment and looked up at Loden. He dropped his rifle, as did the rest of the guards. Loden lowered his lightsaber. He looked at Bell. He smiled. Then, a moment of uncertainty for both Master and Apprentice. Do you sense that? Bell said. From Master Chris on the Third Horizon. Yes, Loden replied. Something is wrong. The Third Horizon. Twenty-five minutes to impact. Avar Chris stood before the projection wall on the bridge of the Third Horizon, still displaying the Hetzal system. The crisis had evolved from a stage of reaction to one of management. No new fragments had appeared from hyperspace in some time, and many of the existing projectiles had been dealt with in one way or another. She was still listening to the song of the Force, and she knew additional Jedi were beginning to arrive in the system to use their skills to help. As she watched the screen, she saw Jorah Mali and Skier execute a complex maneuver alongside two Republic longbeams, destroying a fragment moments before it could impact a transport carrying several thousand evacuees. That's done, Jorah said over the bridge comm, entirely matter-of-fact. Thank you, Master Bali, Admiral Kronara said, standing to Avar's left. I wasn't sure you'd get there in time. Thank the Force, Admiral, Jorah said. And your teams. It was a joint effort. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to see what else Skier and I can do out here. Something is wrong, Avar thought. She knew this was true down to her bones, but she couldn't figure out what felt so off. Call coming in from Coruscant, Admiral, called one of the bridge officers. It's Chancellor So, asking for a status update. Put her through, Lieutenant. I think she'll be happy with the good news. Cronara turned to her, smiling. He wasn't celebrating, exactly. People had died in this system, and they still didn't know what had caused the disaster in the first place. But he clearly felt like he had done his job well, on little notice and with no planning. Skill and training and inspired improvisation had saved the day here. The perfect outcome for a military man. I should know better than to say this, Admiral Cronara said. But I believe the worst might be over. You should know better than to say that, Avar thought. The Force was still singing in her mind, and right in the middle of it, still, a huge blank spot. A silence. Something she was missing. The Admiral stepped to a comm station to take the call from the Chancellor. Avar did not take her eyes off the screen. What am I missing? 
she asked herself. What? Something caught her attention. One of the hyperspace anomalies. Deep in the system. Not far from the largest of Hetzal's three suns. Avar beckoned to the closest bridge officer, then pointed at the display. This, she said, pointing at the anomaly near the sun. What is this, Lieutenant? The officer looked where she indicated. One of the fragments, Master Chris, he replied. It doesn't have any living beings aboard, and fortunately, we can more or less ignore it. Ignore it? Why? He tapped a control on a data pad. A dotted line appeared on the display, showing the projectile's path. It would follow a short arc through the inner system before vanishing deep into the sun. As you can see, the lieutenant said, gesturing at the display, it will just fall into the star and be vaporized. Fortunate, really. We don't have any ships near it. It exited hyperspace deep in the system. Most of our resources are deployed elsewhere. Avar frowned. There's something else. Something about it. The Force drew my attention to it, and we need to understand why. Do you know what it is? Specifically, I mean. The officer hesitated, squinting at the screen as if that might tell him something new. It's too far away for our onboard sensors to get any additional information, ma'am, the officer said. I can check with the Hetzalian administrators, though. They might have some satellites closer that could provide more information. Please, Avar said. And hurry. The officer nodded and moved away, headed for a communications console. Admiral Kronara, back from his conversation with the Chancellor, stepped up beside her. What is it, Master Jedi? He said. I don't know yet, Admiral, Avar replied. Trust in the Force. Well, obviously, Cronara said. How is the Chancellor? Relieved, I would say. This wasn't a good day, but she knows it could have been much worse. Chancellor So asked me a lot of questions I couldn't answer yet, about the source of the anomalies, whether it would happen again, things like that. She's thinking long term. That's her job, Avar said. What do you think she'll do? If I had to guess, she's worried this was some kind of attack. I know it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. Enemies don't usually announce their intentions to hit you ahead of time. They also don't usually send engineless passenger compartments filled with people, Admiral. What are those supposed to be? Some sort of invasion force? I'm not going to pretend I know, Master Chris. It could be some bizarre tactic we don't yet understand. The important thing is that we were here to help stop it, and... Sir! Ma'am! The lieutenant said, and both Admiral and Jedi turned to look at him. The officer was pale, and Avar could sense the man was on the verge of despair, like he had just stepped off a cliff. You know we've been collating our own sensor data with the in-system resources being coordinated through the minister's office in Agire City. He said. Their primary tech is a man named Kaventar. He's been able to do some truly remarkable things, keeping their satellite networks running despite all the damage from the hyperspace incursions. It's all very impressive, actually. And. Lieutenant, please! 
Admiral Kanara said. What is it? The officer nodded and spoke again. Oh, uh, uh, Tar diverted everything he has left to getting a scan of the anomaly Master Chris indicated. The one the, uh, Force pointed out to her. Turns out, it's a container module of some kind. Huge. And it must have been damaged somehow. It's leaking. Just a little, but enough that Tar's network could run a spectrographic analysis. It's... The lieutenant took a breath. It's... Liquid Tabana. The whole thing. And the star it's headed for... Is an R-class. Admiral Cronara swore. Which came as a mild shock to Avar. That, I take it? She asked. The Admiral stared at the display for a long moment. His jaw clenched. Honestly? He said. He turned to look at her. Couldn't be much worse. Did you hear that? That was the intergalactic adventure into the High Republic. We were zooming through space at light speed with fireworks popping all around. My brain is doing somersaults in zero gravity, super pumped about what is coming next. And guess what? This was just round three of the excitement. I'm as pumped up as Palpatine after making Anakin his new apprentice. Every twist and turn of this story introduces us to new wild characters, making our space saga even more tangled and heart pounding. But hold on to your space helmets, because it's time for the epic quote of this episode. Grab onto your ship seats, because this quote is as bright as a star hitting mass. Lou Holtz once said, it's not the load that breaks you down, it's the way you carry it. All right, let's analyze this quote. Imagine you got a big backpack full of stuff you need to carry around. Now, if the backpack is super heavy, you might think that that's what's making it tough to carry. But here's the kicker. It's not just about how heavy the backpack is, but also how you have it strapped on your back. If you wear it the wrong way, maybe with all the weight on one shoulder or too low on your back, it's going to feel heavier and hurt more. But if you adjust the straps right, balance the weight evenly, it suddenly becomes a lot easier to carry, right? In real life, this means that when you are carrying a bunch of problems and responsibilities, that's like a heavy backpack. The load is all the stuff you got to handle. Now, if you're trying to deal with everything all at once or you stress too much about it, that's like carrying your backpack the wrong way. It's going to wear you down real fast. But here's the trick. If you find a smarter way to handle these problems, like breaking them down into smaller bits or getting some help from a friend or family, then it's like adjusting your backpack to make it easier to carry. You're managing your load better. So it's not just about how many problems you got, but how you deal with them. If you tackle them in a way that works for you, they won't break you down as much. It's about finding the balance and not letting the weight of your worries wear you down. And I think that's all I have for this episode, my friends. I hope you had a blast diving into part three of Light of the Jedi, and I hope you will join me for part four, which is coming your way in a few days. So until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.